Well, good morning, y'all. Good to see you. Let me start by saying it's a miracle that I'm even up here today. Uh, some of you guys heard this story. I, I got really sick this week, and it, in the 13 years of our church, it's rare that I pull the ripcord on a Saturday and say, I just can't make it on Sunday. I'm just I'm not physically capable. And um, it's happened maybe once or twice. Adam would know because he usually gets that call. Uh, and Thursday, I, I started feeling the, the flu coming on, and I canceled my appointments. And I figured, I'll just, I'll, I'll press through it, not a problem. Friday, I'm working on my message, and by the time I went to bed that night, I was at about 103 fever, and I was literally trying to type, but I had the chill so bad, I couldn't keep my fingers on the keyboard. It was just crazy. And so, uh, Saturday morning, I'm, I'm laying flat on my back, and I text Grant, and I said, oh man, I, I think I got to pull the ripcord. So we started like talking about ways that we could adjust the service without calling Adam or another elder in at the last second. And um, he said, okay, well, I'll, I'll figure out how to do it. We'll, we'll do a service of worship and reflection. It'll be fine. And I said, well, give me an hour or so. I'm just going to settle here and pray and uh, don't, don't plan anything just yet. And in that hour of laying flat on my back of, and praying, I just, I literally felt this strength come upon me that I didn't know was there. And I got up and I went to my best friend, Theraflu, and... Uh, <laughs> Drink some of that, and boom, I was off and, and writing again. So um, here we are. So that, praise the Lord, right? Prayer works, and, um, and God is gracious. And the only thing I'm going to say this morning is what I, I was pretty foggy when I wrote this, uh, and I st <laughs> I'm still heavily medicated, so who knows what's going to happen today. Uh, but I think God will carry us through. Okay, so we're in week two of our preaching series in the Minor Prophets of the Old Testament, a, a series we're calling, as you can see on the screen, Return to Me. And last Sunday, we looked at the book of Obadiah. Now, Obadiah was a very specific prophecy of doom and destruction that was addressed to the land of Edom, the, the descendants of Esau. So that was a very specific, sort of unusual prophecy. Today, we're going to look at what you might call a more traditional prophetic work that is focused on the nation of Judah and and both God's judgment and his blessing. And speaking of those two things, we need to take some time this morning to lay down a foundation of truth that is going to help us throughout this series. In fact, it's going, to, it's going to govern a lot of the interpretation we do in this series. And what I'm talking about is what's called the blessings and cursings section of the Mosaic Law. Here's the background on this. If you'll recall, the Mosaic Covenant was made between God and his people Israel when Moses was given the law at Mount Sinai, we've seen the movie, right? Or we've, we've seen the, the, the story, we've read the story, we know what's going on there. Mount Sinai, this covenant agreement takes place between two parties. On the one hand, you have a sovereign king, Yahweh, and on the other hand, you have his subjects, Israel. Now, at the time that covenant was established, God reminded his people of their obligation to be, uh, to be obedient to all of his law. And in Exodus 19, the people agreed to that. They said, we will obey you. In fact, they said with one voice, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And so the Mosaic Covenant is what we call a bilateral agreement. There are stipulations and there are obligations for both parties, king and subjects. Now, that's very different from the covenants that God made with Abraham and with David. Those are what we call unilateral covenants in the sense that God makes promises and he binds himself to fulfill those promises regardless of how the people respond. 
Okay, so that's a unilateral covenant. God will do what he promised to do. But with Moses and the law, it was different. If my people are obedient, God said, I will bless them in the land. But if not, I will bring judgment upon them. So the law was given to Israel, and everybody understood the stipulations to this covenant. Now, fast forward to the book of Deuteronomy. What's going on at this time, as some of you know, the word Deuteronomy comes from two Greek words, deutero, which means second, and namas, which means law. So Deuteronomy means the second law. Deuteronomy refers to a restatement or a second statement concerning God's law for the nation of Israel. Go back in your mind as you think about the Exodus. That first generation of Israelites who came out of Egypt were disobedient. They grumbled against Moses. They rebelled against Yahweh. And because of their unbelief, they died in the wilderness. But as we come to Deuteronomy, there's a second generation now, a faithful generation. And they're about to follow Joshua into the promised land. But before they go there, Moses says, look, I want to restate what the law says so that everybody knows what God expects of you under the covenant. I don't want you to go into God's promised land and then forget everything that you have been instructed. And so chapter 8 in Deuteronomy lays out in detail the consequences of either obeying or disobeying. And so first of all, and by the way, this is a great study in your private time. Look at this chapter because it really is key to understanding the Old Testament. He says, in general, there's three types of blessings you'll have in the land. Number one, I will make you prominent among the nations. Number two, I will give you victory over your enemies. And number three, I will give you prosperity in everyday life, which included the land itself being blessed. That means that the rains would come in season, that the crops would grow consistently, that the herds and flocks would grow in number, and that the children would continue to worship Yahweh from generations to generation. Now, that was conditioned upon the people obeying. In fact, here's what Moses said. He said, if you diligently obey the Lord your God, being careful to do all of his commandments, observing them carefully, not turning aside, not to the right or to the left, nor to go after other gods and serve them. So if they did all that, they would enjoy this immense blessing in the land. But if they were unfaithful, and and by the way, if you look at this chapter, there's far more curses than than blessings, because God knew the hearts of his people. But here were the general types of curses they could expect, oppression and defeat at the hands of their enemies, exile to foreign lands, and ruin and frustration in everyday life, which would be the opposite of what we just heard, a lack of rain, failed crops, flocks and herds that are scattered, pestilence, and generations of Israelites who would grope in spiritual darkness and be lost. Now, here's the thing. The history of Israel from that point forward, from Joshua to the story of the kings and all the way through the prophets, that history is basically an outgrowth of Deuteronomy 28. So in everything that happens, in the times of great prosperity, in the times of punishment and judgment, you can see how the people acted in certain ways and they suffered for it. Or they were blessed because they were faithful. But it all sort of comes back to what God stated here in Deuteronomy 28. So throughout the series, I'm going to come back to this, and we're going to look at ways that the people are unfaithful. And so when we see that God brings judgment upon them, we go, well, of course, that's what he promised to do. Does that make sense? Good. So with that in mind, go ahead and turn to your Bibles. Let's look at the book of Joel. We're in Joel today. We're going chronologically, one of the minor prophets each Sunday, sort of a survey style. 
Let me give you a little bit of background here on the prophecy of Joel. Most biblical scholars date the book to around 835 BC, which was a time of great turmoil and transition in the southern kingdom of Judah. Remember, we're looking at the divided kingdom period. Israel's been broken up into two distinct kingdoms, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. The date of the book is uncertain because there are no kings mentioned anywhere in the prophecy itself. And like Obadiah from last Sunday, we're not given any information about Joel except his name and his father's name. Joel or Yoel in Hebrew simply means Yahweh is God. Very, very simple. Now, if you remember last week, I'll put this this lovely chart up on the uh, screen here. If you recall last week, we left off with the death of Jehoram. Okay, so the, the names above the, the arrow is Israel in the north, the names below is Judah in the south. The pink, of course, are the prophets that are operating during these periods of time. So we looked at Jehoram, who came to power in 848 BC, and we saw that he was one of the most wicked kings in all the history of Judah. In fact, he died in his early 40s from what appears to be some type of intestinal cancer that God inflicted upon him because of his wickedness. And his son, Ahaziah, you see there in 841, comes to power at the age of 22 in the year 841 BC. And Ahaziah is as much of a knucklehead as his father. And you might recall that his mother, Jehoram's wife, was the daughter of King Ahab and Jezebel. And they had already invited Baal worship into the northern kingdom of Israel, and now it had leaked down into Judah. So Ahaziah has been raised not to worship Yahweh, but to worship Baal. And it's really amazing when you look at this. At this period in, in, in the history of, of, of God's people, you have pagan kings ruling both Israel and Judah. It's almost impossible to imagine that that would be true. But Baal worship has taken over the land, both in the north and in the south. And so God determined at this point to rid the land of these blasphemers. And he began in the north. And he called on a very specific man, one of my favorite characters in all of Old Testament history, an army commander by the name of Jehu. How many of you guys remember the story of Jehu? God called on this particular man to take on the task of eliminating Baal worship at its very root. And that root goes back to King Ahab. So Jehu was commissioned by God to cut off entirely the house of Ahab. How do you do that? You do that by executing every living relative of this man. He is literally the biblical terminator. (laughs) And and this was God's assignment for him. Now, I'll make the story short because we don't have a lot of time, but it's a story worth reading in your own private study. Jehu gets this commission from God to wipe out the house of Ahab. He climbs in his chariot and he starts riding towards Samaria, which is the capital of the northern kingdom. And he's going there to execute this man you see here, Joram, who is now the king who has succeeded Ahab in the north. He's also a Baal worshiper. And at the same time, Ahaziah, the king of the south, is traveling to Samaria as well, ready to seal an alliance with the king of Israel. So we have two pagan kings coming together to form an alliance, both Baal worshipers, and they're coming to meet together at the very same time that the Terminator is arriving with bad intentions. 2 Kings 9 says this, Joram, king of Israel, and Ahaziah, king of Judah, went out, each in his chariot, and they went out to meet Jehu and found him in the property of Naboth, the Jezreelite. So they went into the valley and they sort of confronted each other in their chariots. 
And Joram, when he saw Jehu, he shouted out, is it peace, Jehu? Right? You can, you can sort of picture this standoff in the valley of Jezreel. Do you come in peace? And this is what Jehu says. What peace? So long as the harlotries of Jezebel and her witchcrafts are so many. So Joram turned and fled, the text says. And Jehu drew his bow with his full strength, and he shot Joram between his arms, and the arrow went through his heart, and he sank in his chariot. Jehu then goes and pursues Ahaziah and kills him too. Two pagan kings liquidated in one day by the Terminator. Now, that's all good and well. He's carrying out his task. By the way, he wasn't told to kill the king of Judah. But he got two pagan kings for one. By the way, Jehu later will be judged for going beyond what God had instructed him to do. Now, here's the problem with that. Now we have this, this gap. We have this void. We have two monarchies in both Israel and Judah that need to, be full, need to be filled. In the north, the people declare Jehu to be king. So he's going to become king in the north. But in the south, there's a problem. Ahaziah, at this point, had no brothers. He had some very young sons. And this is where the story takes a really dark turn. Ahaziah's mother, her name is Athaliah. She is the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. When this happens, when her son is killed, she sees an opportunity for herself. And so she goes out and she does what, what any self-respecting pagan Baal worshiper would do. She seeks to kill and destroy anybody in the royal family that might have a rightful claim to the throne of Judah. So if you can imagine, she has her grandsons rounded up and slaughtered and declares herself to be queen of Judah. Shocking. In fact, I'll, I'll put these names up here so you see this. That all takes place in 841. Now, one problem in Athaliah's plan, one grandson, grandson escaped her wrath, an infant boy by the name of Joash. Joash was hidden away by his older sister and was eventually secreted away to the temple where he was taken uh, by Jehoiada, the high priest of the temple, and Jehoiada protected him for six years from the wrath of his grandma, hid him away. She didn't know where he was and didn't feel threatened by him. But when the time was right, when the people had had enough of this illegitimate queen, Jehoiada moved against her, took a huge risk in bringing Joash, the boy, out. And the people supported him, and they overthrew Athaliah. She was executed, and they put this boy king, Joash, on the throne of Judah at the ripe old age of seven. So Joash becomes king in 835 at the age of seven. And this is where we see, now we see two prophets, Joel in the south and Elisha operating in the north. So that's, that's the background. That's what's going on in the land as Joel writes this prophecy. Keep that in mind because wickedness has filled the land and God is not pleased. Remember, go back to Deuteronomy 28. He's not pleased. So two more things I need to mention before we dive into the actual text. Number one, what we're about to read in Joel is an example of what scholars call biblical telescoping. Biblical telescoping. Here's what that means. You have a prophet who receives the word of the Lord, and he begins to describe multiple events at multiple times in history. And it can get confusing because you're like, hold on a second. Are you talking about now or near history or far history? So it can get difficult, and this is why interpreting prophecy can be difficult, but you often see one message, but multiple fulfillments of that message. I'll show you, in fact, I'll show you what it looks like. 
So this is sort of what this would look like. He might be describing an event that's happening right now, event number one, but then he's going to describe other events that are happening somewhere down the line in history. Does that make sense? It's important. So that's the case with Joel. We're going to see Joel telescope four specific events in these three chapters of his prophecy. That's the first thing you need to know. Second thing you need to know is that Joel is known for using one phrase in particular multiple times. This phrase, the day of the Lord. And it's a phrase that's often misunderstood. When, when we hear it, our minds are quick to race to the very end of days. We immediately think about that time when Christ returns in, in power and he pours out his wrath. And that's true. That's certainly a big part of the day of the Lord, but it's even broader than that. Technically, the day of the Lord describes any time that God breaks into his world for the purpose of judgment. A time when his character is going to be revealed in terms of his power and his holiness and his justice. So the day of the Lord is always a terror for the enemies of God. And for the children of God, it's always a time of refuge and salvation. So it's not just wrath, it's also salvation. It just depends which side of the ledger you're on. So the point is this, a day of the Lord might be a local temporal pouring out of judgment, or it might be global and eschatological. It all depends upon God's plans and purposes. And we're going to see that play out in Joel. Okay, is everybody there? We've set the stage now. And if the timing of Joel's prophecy is right here, there's no doubt that God is concerned about Baal worship in the land. And so all of the curses of Deuteronomy 28 are about to be unleashed on Judah. Look at verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Yoel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, O elders, and listen, all inhabitants of the land. By the way, again, you're not going to see him mention a king's name here, and that makes sense. If a seven-year-old is king, he'd be talking to the elders and the priests probably and not the king. So hear this, O elders, and listen, all inhabitants of the land. Catch the two imperatives. Hear this. Listen, when God says hear this, we ought to pay attention, right? He's not messing around here. Don't take this lightly. This is not Joel's opinion. This is God. Has anything like this happened in your days or in your father's days? Tell your sons about it and let your sons tell their sons and their sons the next generation. So something's happened, something really big and something really bad. Verse four, what the gnawing locust has left, the swarming locust has eaten. And what the swarming locust is left, the creeping locust is eaten. And what the creeping locust is left, the stripping locust has eaten. So you get a picture here. There's been a locust swarm <laughs> that's come into the land. And the language is there for, uh, for emphasis to tell you how serious this has been. And this is not a prophecy about the future. This is a present day event that has taken place. In fact, this is the first thing, the most immediate thing that Joel is writing about, okay? The locust plague right in front of him. Four successive swarms of insects have invaded Judah like a mighty army and have wreaked havoc and destruction on everything in sight. So I was going to put a picture of locusts on the screen, but they're so disgusting. I was like, I'm going to spare the people. It's just terrible. But I went and read an article in National Geographic about locusts, and it's shocking what they can do. Here's what it said. It says, locusts are sometimes solitary insects with lifestyles much like grasshoppers, 
But locusts have another behavioral phase called the gregarious phase. That's a terrible name, by the way. I mean, in other words, they go nuts. They, go, they literally go, they're nice and quiet and solitary until they get really hyped up. It's Red Bull. I don't know what it is. It's just, <laughs> it says, when environmental conditions produce many green plants and promote breeding, locusts can congregate into thick, mobile, ravenous swarms. They occur in many parts of the world, but today locusts are most destructive in sustenance farming regions of Africa. The desert locust is most notorious. Found in Africa, the Middle East, and Asia, they inhabit some 60 countries and can cover one-fifth of Earth's land surface. Holy cow. A desert locust swarm can be 460 square miles in size and pack between 40 and 80 million insects into less than half a square mile. Each locust can eat its weight in plants every day, so a swarm of that size would eat 423 million pounds of plants every day. Yikes. So Joel goes on to describe that this plague, this advanced column of locusts, they swarmed in such numbers that they blocked out the sun, took out everything that was green and succulent, every blade of grass, uh, every leaf, and then the ones that followed literally stripped the bark off the trees. That's how bad this is. The noise of their wings and the crunching of their mandibles as they ate would have been heard for miles. And by the time they were done, what was left in the wake would have looked like a fire had come and swept through the land. Absolute destruction. So, as you probably know, ancient Israel was predominantly an agricultural society. So you can imagine how this would affect everybody in Judah, the entire land. Everybody would have been absolutely devastated. We're talking about starvation. We're talking about disease. We're talking about an inability now to trade. We're talking about economic inflation. All kinds of problems would have come about by this. And so God communicates this message through Joel. He says, tell your sons and your grandsons and your great-grandsons what you've witnessed here today. Now, I'm sure there have been other locust swarms that have come through Judah, but this would have been so big and so unique that it's one of those things. How many of you guys have had relatives that say, well, you know, great-grandpa lived through the Great Depression, or, or they lived through Pearl Harbor, like someday we'll tell our grandkids. I was there when 9-11 happened. We're talking about that type of magnitude. Tell the generations how bad this locust swarm was. So the land mourns, it says in verse 10. The land mourns from this. Later in verse 18, he describes how not just the human beings are affected, but the animals. It says, how the beasts groan. The herds of cattle wander aimlessly because there's no pasture for them. So you can imagine how many of their, their herds and their flocks would have died as a result of this. The damage is so extensive, Joel says, that the sacrifices at the temple have to be stopped. There's no grain offerings to be made. There's no wine offerings to be brought. The vineyards are gone. The wheat and the barley for the bread, it's all been wiped out. This is an absolute disaster. Now, here's what we need to understand. All of those agricultural products, they were gifts from God. God provided those to his people, Judah. And now he had taken them away. He had taken them away. This was not a fluke of nature. God had taken them away. Deuteronomy 28, verse 38 says, You shall bring out much seed to the field, but you will gather little, for the locust will consume it. If you are unfaithful to me, if you chase after other gods, locusts will come and they will feed on your crops. God told them in Deuteronomy 28, 
Here we see it coming to pass in Joel's day. This is the day of the Lord's judgment. So when you tell your kids about this, when you tell your descendants, don't say, well, this was just a random act of nature. No, say, we violated the covenant that we had with Yahweh and we suffered the consequences for it. This was the day of the Lord. So what are the people to do? Look at verse five. Joel uses three imperatives here. He says, awake, weep, wail. He says, everybody wake up. This, this locust plague is a call to a spiritual awakening. Life is not just a cycle of eating and drinking and working. Behind everything is the sovereignty of God. And so God's people need to wake up to the fact that God is constantly making himself known even through tragedies like this. This is a, this is a flashing red light on the dashboard of your life. This locust plague has come from God to get your attention. So here's what they should do, verse 14. Consecrate a fast. Proclaim a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God. Come to the temple, he says, and cry out to the Lord. So Joel calls on the spiritual leaders of Israel to lead the nation in repentance, the R word that we so badly chafe against, right? Repentance. Look at your spiritual condition. Examine yourself and mourn, he says. Weep and wail over your sin. You worship a God who is always ready to forgive and to deliver and to restore. So assemble in his house and cry out to him for mercy. And the fact is, that was the only option they had at this point, right? They were powerless to fix this problem. It's just unfortunate that it had to get to that point, right? That God had to bring this type of tragedy upon the land for them to wake up and say, oh, you know what? Maybe we should cry out to God. So that's what's front and center for Joel, the locust judgment. But he has something even bigger in mind, something coming down the line. If God's people remain stubborn and hard-hearted, if they go back to Baal worship, if they go back to their sin and they will not repent... Something even worse than the locust is coming. So in chapter 2, the prophet begins by describing a second day of the Lord that will come about in the form of a mighty foreign army. Chapter 2, verse 1. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. So now Joel's talking about a future event, not a present one. It's coming. A day of the Lord that will come in the future. First the locust plague, but now something even worse, an army that is massive and destructive and unstoppable. And it's interesting, as Joel begins to describe this army, it has many similarities with a locust swarm. So he's tying these events together. Verse 3, a fire consumes before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but a desolate wilderness behind them, and nothing at all escapes them. Verse 6, before them the people are in anguish, all faces turn pale. Verses 9 and 10, they rush on the city, they run on the wall, they climb into the houses, they enter through the windows like a thief. Before them the earth quakes, the heavens tremble, and the sun and the moon grow dark and the stars lose their brightness. Now here's the shocking truth. Look at verse 11. This is what we sometimes struggle to understand. 
The Lord utters his voice before whose army? His army. It's God himself who will rouse this foreign invader to attack Judah. Just as he had promised in Deuteronomy 28. If you're unfaithful, you'll suffer oppression and defeat at the hands of your enemies. When the plague of locusts devastated Judah, you might have thought that Joel would come in and just comfort the people. Say, I know it's been really hard, but things will get better. Don't worry, you know, keep your head up. That's not what Joel says. He goes, no, 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 no. It's going to get worse if we don't repent. It's going to get worse. Now, biblical scholars have argued over the question of what foreign army Joel's talking about here. Is it the Assyrian army that would invade the northern kingdom in a little more than 100 years from the writing of this? Or is he referring to the Babylonian army that would invade Judah 250 years later in the year 586? I think the answer is a third option. Is Joel speaking of an army that never invaded because the people did indeed repent? The reason why that third option is possible is because of what we we read following in verses 12 to 27. Look at verse 12. Here we learn that God would prefer not to destroy his people. Isn't that good news? I prefer not to destroy you. So he extends an olive branch. He, He extends a reminder of his faithful covenant love. Look what he says. Yet even now, declares the Lord, as you're being threatened with this, even now, return to me with all your heart. And with fasting, with weeping and mourning. Friends, listen, this is God's purpose in temporal judgment, to call the hearts of his people back to faithfulness. Still the condition remains. They must repent. They must turn away from sin. They have to turn away from chasing after these other gods and not in some superficial way. That will not suffice in the day of the Lord. That's why it says in verse 13, rend your hearts and not your garments. What does that mean? Well, rending your garment back in the day was a sign of grief, but it was an external sign. I could rend my shirt, I could rip my shirt open and show the world that I don't care about what I look like or what this this clothing is. It might be valuable. I rend it because I show how grieved I am by things. But here's the problem. Joel knew what you and I know about ourselves. We can fake it. We can fake our repentance, can't we? We can give all the external signs that we're broken and that we're sorry. We can make other people in the church feel like, oh, I'm on track, I'm I'm repentant, and all the while inside we're not. Our hearts are not right. Our hearts are not aligned with God. Inside we're cherishing our sin. Inside we're still refusing to submit various parts of our life to God, our thought life or our fleshly desires. And it really is amazing to think, and look, I'm, I'm part of this, I'm part of you as well, so I'm not saying this, this isn't me, just you, but we can actually be so self-deceived that we can think, whew, I'm deceiving everybody around me, and somehow I'm deceiving God, like he doesn't know what's really going on. It's foolishness, isn't it? I can rend my garments and look really godly, but inside I'm a mess. So unless our heart is really torn before him, A torn garment is meaningless. External ritualism will not suffice in the day of the Lord. 
Now look at the rest of verse 13. Here's why authentic repentance matters. Now return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, and relenting of evil. That's who our God is. He will be faithful to judge when he has to judge because he's a God of holiness and a God of justice, but he's also a tender and compassionate God. So our confession and repentance shouldn't be motivated. We shouldn't be motivated by the fact that, well, that God, he's so mean. If I don't, if I don't somehow repent, he's going to strike me down. That's not why we come back to him and repent. The idea is God is so gracious and so loving that I know he will spare me. And then he'll even go beyond that. He'll bless me. If I simply humble myself before him, confess my sins, and return to him, that's the motivation for authentic repentance. That's why it says in Romans 2.4, it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It's his kindness, his restraint, his patience Not the fear of being struck down. It's his kindness that leads us to that point. That's the proper motivation for authentic repentance. And look at the promise in verse 14. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, even a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. If we repent, maybe he'll relent, is basically what Joel's saying. So consecrate a fast. Pull together a solemn assembly. Run to the house of God and cry out to our merciful and loving and compassionate Lord. Now, there will be times when we'll look at a prophetic book in this series, in the Old Testament, and you will hear God basically declare, judgment is coming. There's nothing that people can do about it. God, is, God will not put up with anything more. And he's like, judgment is coming, that's, that's it, period. But here in the days of Joel... It appears by the text that the people had a very real choice to make. Return to Yahweh with all their heart and once again delight in his covenant blessings or expect to be judged. If they will repent, he will relent. If they will rend their hearts, he will cease to rend their land. That was the choice before the people. And so beginning in verse 15, Joel repeats what needs to be done. Fast, assemble, gather, sanctify the congregation, cry out to God, weep before the altar. Even the bride, he says, on the biggest day of her life, should choose to come out of her bridal chamber and run to the house of God and repent. Because this is a crisis moment. Crisis. Now, in verses 18 to 27, I think we get a hint that the people did, in fact, respond in the days of Joel. Under King Joash... And in fact, God graciously relented from pouring out his wrath. First of all, he talks about turning away a northern army. And second, he says he brought about a stunning restoration to the land. The grain, the vineyards, the oil, the pastures, the trees, all restored. You will have plenty to eat and be satisfied, says the Lord. But most importantly, we read this in verse 27. Thus you will know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is no other. Do you hear that? Guys, that's beautiful covenant language right there. I am the Lord your God. You are my people. A restoration has happened. A restoration in the relationship, which has meant a restoration of the blessings in the land. All they had to do was repent. What is wrong with us? 
Do you ever wonder that? You know, what is wrong with us that we will not humble ourselves and repent before God and enjoy the fruit of his blessings? We are so stubborn, aren't we? Come on, I'm not the only one, right? Don't make me feel like the Lone Ranger. But this is human nature. This is, look what he says. I, you will know that I am in your midst. What does that remind you of? Emmanuel, God with us. That Yahweh would be in our midst. Is there anything a human being could treasure more than to know that God is in our midst? So here's what these first two chapters show us. That God is committed to his promises and to his people. He's committed to forgive and restore and revive and renew. And the ultimate aim in his sending the locust swarm against his people, listen, is to secure their undivided allegiance. This was the purpose of the swarm to secure 100% of their heart so that you will know that I am the Lord your God and there is no other. Now, Joel has a third thing in view at the end of chapter two. See how the, see how the letters are getting smaller? Is that not creative, Grant? This is my brilliant graph. It's like a Star Wars look. Or something, I don't know. So Joel lifts his eyes to the future now at the end of chapter 2. And he's carried along by the Spirit and he sees a time of spiritual blessing beyond this restoration of the land after the locust plague. Here's what it says. Verse 28 of chapter 2. See it? It will come about after this, after the restoration of the land, that I will pour out my Spirit on all mankind. And your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered for on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be those who escape, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. Now, that passage should sound familiar. Anybody know where it's from? Good. It's a part of Peter's famous sermon in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. You remember the story, right? The apostles are all together in one place, and a sound happens, the sound of a violent wind uh, rushing and, and they see tongues of fire resting on them, and these disciples are filled with the Holy Spirit, and they begin to speak with other tongues. It's this crazy scene, right? And all the people that are there are like, what is going on? And they go, ah, they're drunk. <laughs> they're drunk. And Peter stands up, he goes, no, no, no. Let me correct the record. We're not drunk. This is, in fact, the moment prophesied by the prophet Joel. Okay? So this was the first sign that God gave his people that the new age and the new covenant had arrived, and soon the birth of the New Testament church. It also ushered in what we call the last days, the final era or age before Christ returns in power to rule the earth. By the way, some people really struggle with that connection between Joel and Peter. It's like, I'm trying to figure it all out. But the interesting thing is later in the sermon, Peter exhorts the people in his day with the exact same application that Joel had way back in the ninth century. 
What do I mean by that? Peter quotes Joel, he preaches this message, and the people respond, it says in Acts 2, that they were pierced to the heart by his words, and they said, well, Peter, what should we do? What does Peter say? Repent. That R word again. Right? That's what Peter says, repent, and then be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Guys, there's a consistency from Old and New Testament. Repentance. Repentance, repentance. Now, one more important note as we compare Joel with Acts 2, not everything you see here in Joel's prophecy and what I just read came to pass on the day of Pentecost. Do you see the events described there in verses 30 to 32? These cataclysmic signs in the sky and on the earth, they didn't happen on the day of Pentecost in Peter's day, but they will happen in the very final hour. So catch this. In the five verses where Joel describes this, at the end of Joel chapter 2, he prophesies the sign that will begin the church age, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, and the signs that will be a symbol of the closing of the church age with all these cataclysmic things in the sky. So it's almost like he's bookended it. This is the beginning, and this is what the end will look like, and he tucked it right there into five verses in his prophecy. Amazing, right? All right, one last event that Joel has in sight. And this one is clearly eschatological. It it can't be much more clear than this. So all that cataclysmic language you see at the end of chapter 2, that is language you will see throughout the prophets, not just in Joel, but in Isaiah and Daniel as well. Obviously, we hear it in the book of Revelation. That same language comes out of the mouth of Jesus himself in Matthew 24. All these cataclysmic signs. There's going to be a ton of signs in the sky when he comes back in power. This is what's called the great and awesome day of the Lord. Now, as we come to Joel chapter 3, he begins to describe for us what exactly is going to go down in those last hours. And in particular, he points to a great war that's going to take place in Israel, a war that's prophesied in more detail in Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39. And basically, here's what happens. A great army is going to invade the promised land from the north, which is, by the way, the direction that every great army came down into the promised land around what we call the Fertile Crescent. Assyrians, Babylonians, they all came in from the north. So it's a northern army that's going to come down into the promised land. It sweeps across the land. It destroys everything in its way, not unlike the locust plague, by the way, not unlike the Assyrians and the Babylonians previously. And it is going to capture the city of Jerusalem And so all of those events are part of what we call the day of the Lord. Locust plague, Assyrians, Babylonians, and this last final army that will come down into the land. But this final day, this day is unique in its scope and magnitude. The locust plague and the foreign invasions of the past, remember, it was God himself who brought them and aroused them to fight the battle. And the same will be true here. Look at verse 2. So we're in Joel 3, verse 2. He says, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Then I will enter into judgment with them there. Verse 9, proclaim this among the nations. Prepare a war. Rouse the mighty men. Let all the soldiers draw near. Let them come up. God is welcoming them into his land for one great final battle. Now, there is no location in Israel called the valley of Jehoshaphat. What Joel is doing is using a literary tool. What does Jehoshaphat mean in Hebrew? The Lord judges. 
It's the valley of judgment is what he's referring to here. We believe the actual location of this war is going to be in the valley of Jezreel, which is by this, this mound we, uh, we call Megiddo. And in Hebrew, the mound of Megiddo is Har-Mageddon. Okay, and we believe this is where it's going to take place. In fact, here's a picture of it. That mound you see there is the archaeological site of Megiddo that's still being unearthed after all these years. They've gotten down, I think it's like 12 layers down. They found, they found evidence from even the time of Solomon down there. And so our, our Israel team is going to be here in just a few months. But beyond that archaeological site in the distance is the Valley of Jezreel. That's where this final battle is going to take place. It is a massive flat piece of land that will, that will have tons of room for all kinds of armies. Now, there's no doubt about how this battle is going to end. Joel says here in verses 15 to 16, look at it. Chapter 3, verse 15. The sun and the moon grow dark and the stars lose their brightness. Again, heavenly signs. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earth tremble. Man, I don't know what this is going to look and sound like, but it's big. I mean, imagine the, uh, just a massive global earthquake as this takes place. Everything trembles. Prophet Zechariah says, then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. And who is this Lord? He can only be one person. He can only be one person. The same person who ascended to heaven from the Mount of Olives and promised that he would return in the exact same way. Here's what Zechariah says about that. In that day, his feet will stand where? On the Mount of Olives. Now, Zechariah is writing this long before Jesus even comes in the flesh, right? But the prophecy is here. Jesus said, as he left the Mount of Olives, I'll return in the same way. But in this day, the great and awesome day of the Lord, he will stand on the Mount of Olives, our conquering king, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley. Half of the mountain will move toward the north, half will move towards the south, then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. What a picture. What a picture. Listen, when, when Yeshua returns in his glorious form as El Shaddai, God Almighty, he's no longer going to look like that humble, suffering servant hanging on the cross. At his voice, the entire earth trembles. Think about that. As he walks, mountains split before him. Amazing to think about. In Revelation 19, John the Apostle got a vision of this as well. And this is how he described Jesus. He, he said, his eyes are a flame of fire. On his head are many crowns. He's clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. From his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. That's our king. That's our king. That last phrase is actually quite graphic. If you've ever seen how a wine press works, you'll understand what that's saying. This massive, heavy stone is rolled over these grapes, and it just squashes them, and the juice comes flying out in every direction. Think about the picture with now with human bodies. That's the picture that's being drawn here. These men who will line up for battle in, in the valley of Jezreel will be plucked like a ripe harvest and like those grapes crushed in judgment. 
Joel uses the same metaphor. Look at Joel 3.13. He says, put in the sickle for the harvest is ripe. Come, tread for the winepress is full. The vats overflow for their wickedness is great. Look at verse 14. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. Folks, the battle of Armageddon will be the ultimate place of decision, only it's not man deciding. This is God deciding. This is the separation of the sheep and the goats. God will decide in that day. Those who fight on the wrong side of this battle are on the wrong side in the valley of decision. Now, here's what draws my attention in all this. When I think about the end of days, I think about all the chaos that's going on. It will be chaotic. Tribulation, death, destruction, it will be crazy. But we have multiple promises here in Joel that in the midst of all of this, in the midst of all of this judgment, God is going to pay close attention to those that he loves and protect them, his elect. If you go back to the end of chapter 2, it says the sun grows dark and the moon goes blood red, but God says it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He's a God of judgment, but he wants to save. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be those who escape. Obadiah said the same thing last week. Those who get to Mount Zion will be safe. Chapter 3, verse 16, the heavens and the earth tremble, but the Lord is a refuge for his people and a stronghold to the sons of Israel. Remember this, the day of the Lord is both a day of judgment and a day of salvation. You just want to make sure you're on the right side in the valley of decision. Amen? Now, the last five verses of Joel's prophecy, if you look at the end of chapter 3, man, this is what we long for. This is a description of what we long for. This is the millennial kingdom. When Christ, after he's been victorious in the, in the battle of Jezreel, he will rule the world from Jerusalem. Can you imagine this? Verse 17, then you will know that I am the Lord your God dwelling in Zion. I will make my home in Zion on my holy mountain, he says. Can you imagine? Glorified Christ ruling from Jerusalem. Listen to how Isaiah describes this in more detail. It's really beautiful. He says, It will come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills, and all the nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Folks, if you don't believe in a millennial kingdom, I don't see how that takes place. Israel's the most hated nation on earth. Nobody wants to stream to Zion for wisdom. They'd like to destroy Israel. This will only happen when Christ returns and rules there. And people say, the God-man has returned, and he lives in Jerusalem. Let's go there and learn from him. This is the millennial kingdom. Joel adds, verse 18, and in that day the mountains will drip with sweet wine, and the hills will flow with milk, and all the brooks of Judah will flow with water. What a, a beautiful scene, guys. This is what we long for to see our Messiah and Savior return in power, to establish his kingdom, and to fulfill every promise that he's ever made to us. So we scream, come Lord Jesus. Come Lord Jesus and establish your kingdom. Whew. Joel. Dang, Joel. 
I mean, there's a ton in here, isn't there? That's the medicine talking right there. There's a ton of stuff here in these three chapters. But what a beautiful picture. Now, look, I, I shouldn't have to spend a lot of time on the application of this. I, I'm, I'm trusting that the Spirit of God's already moved in your heart to help you understand. And we should start by saying, look, I know that there's differences between ancient Israel and America today, so we want to make sure we understand that we're not ancient Israel. We live under the new covenant. We live and, 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 and walk with Christ by faith and, and not under the law of Moses. We, we affirm that we have a much greater covenant, a much greater high priest than Israel or Judah could ever even imagine. But one truth has never changed, and that is that God desires that his people live in a state of repentance. Old Testament, New Testament, Israel, America, the church, we live in a state of repentance. By the way, do you remember the, what was the core message that John the Baptist brought in his day? Repent. And what was the first thing that Jesus taught when he came on the scene? Repent. Repent, repent, repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. You're seeing it. You're seeing a partial fulfillment right now, right before you. So repent. The same message. Now, because we live in the new age and because America is not God's chosen nation, did you know that, by the way? We're not God's chosen nation. Let's just get rid of that. Our repentance is going to look a little bit different than it did in Judah in the days of Joel. Our repentance is not national. We can't call, what is it, 380 million people, most of whom are unbelievers, and call for national repentance. That, that's meaningless, right? So repentance for us becomes A, personal, and B, within the community of faith, within the local church, together as one. So we're personally repenting, and then we're also repenting as a church body. That's the distinction between now and back then. So personally, we're to have regular times of confession and repentance as we abide in Christ, as we walk with him daily. There is no substitute for that. And as a community of his disciples, we're to come together regularly, especially in times of crisis, and we're to come for a solemn assembly. And in those moments, we ought to gather as the family of God and seek his face and cry out to him for his mercy and for his comfort. And I'll be honest with you, frankly, the church doesn't do this very well today. And it's because in America, we have so much. And we don't suffer much, do we? And so it's hard sometimes to even see the church with a desire to repent. We'd much rather, you know, have a concert and just whoop it up and praise the Lord and raise our hands and get all emotional and just and party. That just feels better. When sometimes what's called for is a solemn assembly where we come together as a church family and we repent. And that's why here at Oak Hill and Grant does a great job with this. Every single week, we want to make sure that we're doing both ends of that spectrum. Yeah, we should be joyful in the Lord. We should be praising his name. So we should be shouting for joy because God is so good. But at the same time, we should also take the necessary time to be quiet before him and as a body to repent of our sins. That's important. Returning to him and bringing our hearts in line with his. Now, where do you stand today with the Lord right now? This is a time for personal reflection. Where do you stand today? I'll repeat what I shared last Sunday. If you haven't bowed your knee to Christ and you haven't trusted in him by faith alone for the forgiveness of your sins, I said last week, you stand with Cain and you stand with Esau 
And now I will tell you, you stand on the wrong side of the valley of decision as we sit here today. You're on the wrong side of the valley of decision. So today is the day to address that problem. Today is a time of crisis for you to make that decision. It can't be business as usual until you bow your knee before him. That's my heart for every person in this room, that we would bow our hearts before Christ, that we would humble ourselves, that we would stop depending on ourselves, that we would, we would die to ourselves, and that we would take up our cross and follow him and trust in him alone for the forgiveness of our sins. To my fellow believers, question for you guys is, has God been using circumstances in your life to get your attention? Like a locust swarm. Has God brought things into your life where he's, got, he's sending off those lights on the dashboard? He's trying to get your attention. He wants you to return to him. Are you under his discipline right now because you're cherishing sin in your life? If so, when are you going to turn back to your Savior and your Lord? We learn from Joel that sometimes God wounds us as a loving father. Sometimes he brings things into our lives that are painful. But it's for one reason, because he wants 100% of our hearts. He wants loyalty from you and from me. He wants us to be faithful. Doesn't want just a portion of us. He will not allow us in his love to seek after other gods and worship and serve them. He will bring stuff into our lives to call us back. And as I said earlier, why do we not recognize it? Why are we so stubborn? Why do we not want to be under his great blessings? Instead, we harden our hearts and say, no, I will have what I want. And experience his chastisement. So rend your hearts before him, brothers and sisters. Your hearts, not your garments. Don't fake it. And do that continually. Make that the pattern of your life, a pattern of repentance. And see if he won't pour out blessings upon you in ways that you can't even imagine. Because that ultimately is God's heart for you. Pray with me, would you?